0: Hi, and welcome to a podcast from Hope Springs Church Coventry. For more, please find us on Facebook at Hope Springs Church or on Twitter, we're at Hope Springs Cob. Thank you and enjoy. Right, I'm going to make a start because uh, I do want to give some time to what Steve was. Uh, talking about just in the notices about kind of our personal testimonies. And that that's really uh, linked in to what I'm speaking about today. So that's kind of gonna be a little bit of a finale uh, for us. Um so I'm just gonna pray, Heavenly Father, uh, thank you that you are with us and that your with usness defines us as a people, that that your presence is a deciding Uh, factor for us in the way that we live and move and have our being in you and in this world, that, that we take our lead from you, that we look to Jesus, that we fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith for our direction is the one that we imitate so father i pray uh, like um, what luke was singing this morning that that we'd continue to breathe you in that we'd continue to um, revel in your presence uh, that we'd get to know you more and as we as we see you as we uh, get to know you that we've become like you that we become transformed into your likeness in jesus name amen. amen So, today we're carrying on talking about identity, we're we're doing this I Am His uh, series that that Steve set up for us with um, Psalm 23, and so of course, uh, we're talking about our identity in Christ, so we're going to talk from Judges 19, 20 and 21. Uh, It's the obvious go-to scripture passage, what better to think about our identity than a Levite hacking up his wife, uh, tribes declaring war on each other, uh, and general... Biblical goodness. So, who read the passages? Who did their homework? Okay, well done. Uh, So, thoughts. What do you think about that? It's in the Bible. This is the Word of God, useful for instruction. What do we get from this passage? I could cheat and tell me all this if you told me. Okay. (laughs) That's all by the by, so you can say that. Uh, It's probably not going to come up in what I'm saying. I mean, my thought was, where's I si going with this? So, um, it's pretty brutal. I was yeah. wondering if I was reading the right bit. <laughs> <laughs> How do you feel that it's actually in the Bible? Um, that it's not been edited out, it's not been sanitised. That is in the Bible. Um, I think it's, uh, it's something that we experience so, and the Bible is things that people experience so. Good. So it's real. It's very, very yeah. <laughs> shockingly real. Any other thoughts about it? Any other notes? Anything that you picked up? So with your Bible study head on, did you notice anything about the text? I did notice that the women seemed to have no say in anything that was going on. Yeah, it's quite a prominent feature. So there's a definite skew in the text around gender roles and patriarchy, and who actually is given a voice in the history and who isn't given a voice. Interesting. I think it was interesting that the different tribes, all of the, the, you know, the same overarching kind of covenants, I don't really know how to put it, but yeah. the fact that they could go to war and then afterwards try and rectify or remedy yeah. the situation, that I think they just thought was very odd. Oh. And who did they go to war with? The, the Benj- ben- Benjamin. One of the other tribes. Yeah. <laughs> so it's internal fighting. Yeah. They did it because of the abuse of women, but then to make it right get from those of women as slaves Yeah, yeah. Like and then said that anybody who from that original tribe from the tribe that they were robbed from they've just, just been eliminated. An yeah. yeah. okay then this is real bible study nerd stuff, who noticed what the first line was and what the last line was? I was about to say about I mean about the last line how I just thought it was almost quite satirical that it just ends with bonus points for satirical blood <laughs> from you sir. Um, right, everything just did what they thought was right in their own eyes. Um, okay, what's the other part of that line? There was no king in Israel. How did, what's 19 verse 1? No yeah, in those days there, when there was no king in Israel. So the, the, the writer is trying to tell you something. In, in chapter 17 and chapter 18, this, this line is also repeated. Mm. Um, okay, any other things that you noticed? Did it remind you of another story, perhaps, from Genesis? Yeah, the story of the the, salt woman. Salt woman, yeah. Lot's wife. Yeah, Lot's wife. So, Sodom and Gomorrah, it reminds you of Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah. Good, good. And what's the difference between the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and this one that we're looking at? What's one major, major difference between them? That's, that's one major difference. The lack yeah. of destroying cities. Not turned into salt. Not, no salt. Uh, lack of uh, condiments. Yep. Anything else? Who's a big player in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah? Who's one of the major characters in that story? That's pretty much absent from this story, which is kind of shocking given it's in the Bible. Abraham and God. God. Um, God. So in Judges 19, 20 and 21, how often is God mentioned? I don't need a specific number. Just, just well there were there were there were times when they were they the, the army were asking oh yeah. They good, out. good like to go or not to three go times there was yeah. three Okay, three times. and so where where in this entire narrative of their decision making does God come in? Is it at the start when they're trying to decide what to do? No. Is it in the middle where they're already plunged headlong or is it at the end? And, he tells them how to defeat the uh, and what does God tell them to do? and what happens to them when they follow what God does what God tells them so they die they, die. they, they get they defeated get and, and so just just minding this a little bit more who are the bad guys of the piece? like the main bad guys who are the guys that they're fighting against Benjamites, Benjamites. but when in that narrative of the wars who comes out looking like heroes do. It reminded me of, like, 300. Yeah, yeah, the Benjaminites, these left-handed people that managed to cut down all of the the best of Israel, the rest of Israel, every time. So it's a really, really confusing narrative, isn't it? It's really, really, really odd. This is the culmination of the Book of Judges, right before Israel plunges into having a king. It's shocking, right? And it's repulsive. Yeah. The framework of this narrative, okay, is this idea that in those days there was no king in Israel and all of the people did what's right in their own eyes. And then what follows in those couple of chapters is that playing out in a very dramatic, real, real terms. It's not just some religious language. There was no king in Israel and everybody did what was right in their own eyes. It's there was no king in Israel. Everybody did what was right in their own eyes. This is what it looks like. And just to make sure we've got it, it brackets both ends of the story. <coughs> 17 and 18, by the way, those chapters are equally weird. <coughs> in fact, just before that, it's the story of Samson, which is also very weird. But that sort of autonomy, so not, not looking too much into what it means to have a king and what it is to, for people to do what's right in their own eyes. This sort of autonomy, what did it lead to? It led to a brutality. There's a real, real... Um, Visceral brutality to this. This is like a Quentin Tarantino film Mm. of the Bible. This is this is like over the top blood spatter and gore (coughs) going on. Um, There's this this really really over exploitation of people, like like Pete mentioned. Like there is no voice given to women, but these women are kind of trafficked and moved around Mm. like a a piece on a game board. Oh, you know, well, you know, like have you ever thought? Like it doesn't actually mention that that the, the Levite's concubine was dead. Yeah when he hacks her up? No, yeah. When did you cut it into pieces? Pardon? When did you cut it into pieces? So he goes, um, so the Levite, he chases off his his wife like leaves and the language there is very uh, ambiguous in the Hebrew. So like sometimes they say that she was unfaithful, that she whored herself out. Uh, But the same word for whore can just mean leave (laughs) which is a really weird, lexical kind of relationship there. but So she leaves and goes to her father's house. And then the Levite chases her. And then the, the men of the town, the Benjaminites, come along. In a real, real, real... Um but like one of the important things in the Middle East, like it's still true today, is this idea of hospitality. That's, that's, that's such a major cultural thing. And so there's, there's, there's a real kind of, it's not just a lack of hospitality, it's like the exact opposite of hospitality when this, this person comes into town. And so they obviously throw out, the, the, they offer the women in the house, and, and they're, they're defiled from dusk till dawn. And then she faints on the thing, and then he takes her, he just drags her off back home, and that's when he cuts her up into 12 pieces and sends those pieces to all the tribes and that's that's the beckoning call for all the tribes to come and go to war with Benjamin, right? So he cuts, I think that's in like chapter 20. Um, it's, just, it's right at the end of 19. Yeah, there you go. Um, and this is, that acts as the carrying call for the, the tribes to come together and, and then kill one of the other tribes. And so this sort of autonomy, this this, each person did what was right in their own eyes led to this brutality, it led to exploitation. There's a real kind of lack of justice going on. It, it's a little bit like a Wild West thing, so it could be a Tarantino film. There's, a, there's this real kind of um, lack of justice, lack of uh, righteousness, lack of hospitality. And this general kind of social breakdown, even the tribes of Israel, who were this cohesive unit that went into Canaan, in the conquest of Canaan, they're coming apart at the seams, literally coming apart at the seams. So one tribe is set upon, but they beat back you know, essentially they're brothers and all and, and, this. There's this like, real crazy chaos going on. Um, and so that, that word chaos, this is actually very like socio-politically happening. That's like chaotic, isn't it? Um, there is no demonstration of justice and mercy. So these are, these are characteristics of Yahweh. Justice and mercy. Neighbourliness. Looking after the weak. Throughout um, Deuteronomy, for example, there's this refrain of looking after the widow, the orphan, and the stranger. This is what Yahweh says to them when they come out of Egypt. This is what you will be like as a people. You will make sure there's justice in the land. You will act mercifully. You will make sure that those on the margins that are open to exploitation, that they are actually looked after. So you will look after the widow, the orphan, and the stranger. This, this refrain runs throughout Um, sort of deuteronomy it runs in numbers and leviticus like this is what so yahweh is trying to form a people and these are the things that he says to them now we have to get away from that really bizarre reductionism that we've entered into of grace versus law okay that's that's like that's what people preach when they haven't read luther properly and they haven't done any decent work on what torah is right so all throughout the commands of God, I'm going to call it commands rather than law so we don't get confused, is this, this hospitality, this love, this mercy, this justice that, that God is trying to get his people to follow. And there is, there is a definitive lack of those characteristics in the people of Israel in this story. <clears throat> so let's look at the idea of there is no king is one of the framing things. Who is king? Are they, are they saying that we need, they needed to have a monarch and therefore it runs nicely into the book of 1 Samuel where we have Saul, David, yada, yada, yada. Is that what it's saying? There was no king in Israel, so this is a good reason why we should have a monarch. Do you think that's what's going on? Well, no. <laughs> because of the way I'm saying it, right? <laughs> um, and because, and I did, I did pick up on this, that um, when he cuts up the woman, that is reminiscent of what Saul does... Um, when he becomes king and sends it to you so it's almost like well when whether you've got a king or not the same thing is happening very good very good yeah this is i've read some i was saying to Pete earlier that there's some commentators that reference this kind of section as a satire proper charlie brooker black mirror satire on saul's kingship so if you look at the place names and the language used it's very deliberately taken from saul's life very very clever and by the way, the Bible is full of this like really deep reading that is just genius. I love it. Um, but yeah, so what, who were who they talking about? There is no king in Israel then. What, what, what do you think that's saying? I've been reading a lot of Old Testament theology, so like, this is kind of ingrained in me now. But what, what comes up time and again? Say in the Psalms, I'm looking at you, Luke. Even the songs that we were singing this morning... Well, some of the songs we sing other mornings as well. What? what Who's king? Yeah. Who did Israel recognise as their monarch, essentially, throughout the whole Exodus period? What language did they use? They used words of reigning, yeah. dominion, mm-hmm. um, you are enthroned. Yeah. Yeah. All this language about Yahweh being king, what set them apart from everybody was they didn't have a monarch, a, a regular bloke with a crown on his head. Mm. Look, I have a crown on the top of my head. Um... Yahweh was their king. And that's what made them different. Because they take their lead and their direction and their characteristics from their sovereign. And everybody else had a bloke. So they had Pharaoh, there was like Nebuchadnezzar, like the Babylonians had their kings, etc. But Israel had Yahweh as a king. So one of the telling things is that when Israel asks for a king, what do they say? They say, We want to be like everybody else so give us a king and yahweh relents but at this point there is no king in israel and then there's this really funny bit where there's barely any voice of yahweh in that whole narrative and when he does interrupt the narrative i have to ask is it what they wanted to hear or were they actually hearing from god because it seems very funny that they've already started on this endeavour of going to war no reference to God and then in the middle of the war they say God what are we going to do well of course Yahweh's going to say you've chosen the right course of action so just carry on Mm. go up and fight against them but Yahweh's advice is bad because they lose Mm. and then just in case we were fuzzy about it they ask him again well we lost yesterday God (coughs) What should we do today? Go up against them again. Yahweh, mm. <laughs> this isn't going so well. Um, what should we do? Well, obviously, just keep doing. Just keep on going. And then eventually they win, but they, they feel bad about it. Yeah. Throughout the conquest of Canaan, how does Yahweh interact with them? Go up against them, and they're successful. Or don't go up against them, because you won't be successful. So let's, let's hold back on that one. But this time, when it appears Yahweh is talking to them, they are unsuccessful. Even when they win, they are unsuccessful and they're beset with this grief. Oh no, we better make it right. So what's the obvious way to make it right with our brothers? Let's kidnap some women. Is Yahweh in this story at all? There is no king in Israel. The author is critiquing exactly what is going on. In Psalm 96, it's a wonderful psalm, and it talks about the king, Yahweh. But littered through the psalm is Yahweh's ethical action as a sovereign. You are a crowned king. You are the sovereign. You reign because you look after the widow and the orphan and the stranger. You lift up the ones in the dirt and make them seated like princes. What does Yahweh's kingship look like? It looks like something tangible. And when Yahweh isn't there... It looks like everybody doing what is right in their own eyes. And that looks like absolute carnage. It doesn't look like justice. It looks like injustice. It doesn't look like liberation from captivity. It looks like exploitation. It doesn't look like an egalitarianism. It looks like um, segregation and pushing people down. There is no king in Israel. So, what does it look like then for people to do what is right in their own eyes? There's this, um, I, I don't like reductionist sayings particularly, but there's this saying, you know, stand for something or fall for anything. If there is no defining characteristic, if there is no hard edges to things, then everything becomes this kind of nebulous idea. There is no definition. By definition, there is no definition. It's a sentence and a half. Because Yahweh, throughout Deuteronomy, he calls Israel to be a peculiar people. And the language is you're to be an alternative people, you're alternative to over and against the dominant narratives that are going on. So he calls them out of Egypt, right? So what is Egypt? It's this seven days a week they're producing. Bricks upon bricks. Our identity is defined by, by our production. There is no respite. All I am is bricks. That's all I do. That's my whole definition. But what does Yahweh do? Well, of course, on the seventh day, you don't do anything. Sabbath will be a defining characteristic for you. Egypt is defined by exploitation of the masses. The enslavement of everybody under Joseph's righteous steward. (laughs) What is Israel characterised by? Do not glean to the edge of your fields that the widow and the orphan and the stranger may actually have some food. Did they earn it? No. But what are you supposed to do? You are supposed to be merciful and look after people. Egypt, everybody was indebted to Pharaoh. Because there was a famine and everybody sold everything they had and eventually sold themselves into the debt to Pharaoh. What does God produce in Deuteronomy? Well, he says it in Exodus as well. Forgiveness of the debts. Jubilee. Every seven years, give back. And every seven of seven years, give everything back. Forgive all debts. If anybody has become enslaved to you, you set them free and you make sure that they have enough to get right in society. It isn't just about being a weird people. It's about being a people that are so wholly defined by one thing that they are over and against, utterly other to the prevailing narratives. We have this word holiness which means separated from. And somehow we've skewed that word into meaning that well obviously only people with big hats and big beards and censers are very holy. Or I have to and not dance or drink alcohol to be holy. But that's not what it is at all. It's about being utterly separate. I, I take no definition of myself from the prevailing narrative. So for us, that would be Western um, consumerist capitalism, for example. Over and against the dominant, dominant narratives. But when people are just doing whatever seems good to them... Without that definition, without that reference to Yahweh, everything goes to chaos—literally social chaos. Tribes fighting each other, have not having a clue, like taking women from other places and giving them back to try and make good on their promises. Without Yahweh's direction, guidance, or presence, the people of God—without God, the people of God just become the people of. If you think about that as a a rhetorical statement. The people of God without God just become the people of blank, whatever. The people of whatever. That's what defines them, whatever. Defined by the dominant narratives. So I just want to explore this over and against sort of uh, language. So if you want to turn with me to Isaiah 40, this is where we go from looking at concubines being chopped up um, to something actually uplifting. You'll be happy to know. So if you want to turn with me to Isaiah 40, you'll probably recognise this passage. It's the bit about the mountain up on eagles' wings, young people getting tired and stuff like that. Teenagers, I don't know. Right, so a bit of context to Isaiah 40 then. This is the time when Israel has been thoroughly, thoroughly, thoroughly defeated by Babylon. They have been so thoroughly defeated by Babylon that Babylon has taken all of the notable people out of Israel and transported them across the desert to Babylon. They've become exiles again. Okay? They've been there for a period of time. Now, in the ancient world, if you went to war, this wasn't just a reflection on your fighting strength. It was a reflection on how powerful your God is. So if you lost, that meant that your God lost to the other bloke's God. Israel has been absolutely destroyed by Babylon. Whose God is the winner? Is it Yahweh or is it Babylon's God? If you're an Israelite and you've been thoroughly, thoroughly defeated, what are you thinking? Yahweh's failed. Babylon's got stronger. How do we know? Because we're here in Babylon and not in Jerusalem. We no longer have access to Jerusalem. We are in exile. We have lost. Yahweh has lost. And this is where Isaiah comes in. Remember that idea over and against the dominant narratives. From verse 25, this is Yahweh speaking through Isaiah, but Yahweh speaking, To whom will you liken me (laughs) that I would be his equal? Yahweh's having none of it. I've not been defeated by Babylon. The king and the God of Babylon is not even near my class. You couldn't even use the language of equality between us. To who then were you liken me that I would be his equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created the stars. You want to talk about Godship? The God of Babylon has won petty wars. I created the very land on which those wars take place. This is Yahweh. What a... What a narcissistic statement um, lift up your eyes on high and see who has created the stars the one who leads forth their host by number he calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power not one of them is missing why do you say O Jacob and assert O Israel my way is hidden from the Lord and the justice due to me escapes the notice of my God bearing in mind this is Israel asking these questions in exile That's abandoned us. That's what they're thinking. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. He gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might, he increases in power. Though the youths grow weary and tired, and vigorous young men stumble badly... Yet those who wait upon the Lord will gain new strength, and they will mount up with wings like eagles, and they will run and not yet get tired, and they will walk and not become weary. Israel is weary. Israel is in exile. They think their God has forgotten them. And what is the word of the Lord to this hopeless people who are in exile yet again? I know you are weary. I will give you strength. I know that the dominant narrative is telling you to be hopeless, but I am the God who gives you hope. Over and against everything else, even though you are captives, you can be the people that live in liberation. You can live an alternative way. You can embody a different way. And then Yahweh's statements are vindicated by being delivered out of captivity eventually. They may be captives, but they can live as the delivered of Yahweh. It doesn't matter where they physically are. Because they will always be the people of Yahweh. Therefore, they can always live and move and have their being in a very certain way that is not dependent upon what the circumstances are telling them they should be doing. The narrative of Yahweh is over and against the dominant narratives of the world. Regardless of circumstance, Yahweh says, even though it looks hopeless... You can be hopeful because I am trustworthy. You were exiles before in Egypt. And what happened? It took 400 years, but I delivered you with my outstretched right arm. You are now exiles again. Have you learned nothing from your past? Have you learned nothing from who I am? Therefore, I will remind you. Because I'm the creator God that you worshipped in the wilderness after coming out of Egypt. And I'm still that creator God. I'm still the deliverer God. And I'm calling you to be a very specific people. Yahweh reframes reality. Hopelessness that they find in exile is not the final word. The hopelessness that we can feel oft times is not the final word. And we know this because death is not the final word. It is love that never fails. The bonds of death fail. They have been defeated. But love never fails. There is always another word. There is always another reality to be lived in. There's always an alternate reality over and against the dominant narratives that appear to be around us. Because, going back to Psalm 23, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Because if Yahweh is with me, then the valley of the shadow of death isn't the final word. That isn't the final destination and that's not how the valley always looks. Because if Yahweh is guiding, if Yahweh is comforting, if Yahweh is present, then those things are never the end. That is never the final word. John, uh, let's move into the New Testament now. Let's uh, make sure that we cover all of our bases. In one John. <coughs> just, just, yeah, one John, <laughs> come on. Such a beautiful um, letter as a whole, actually. So what's going on here is, this is the early church now. And what they found is that the, this, this certain way of thinking about life, it is a certain philosophical system of Gnosticism, was infiltrating the church. And so John, in his pastoral capacity, is trying to tell the church, that is not how the, your identity works. Okay, this is your identity. And he goes on to say this. So it's all about identity again. It's all about this contest of, of a dominant narrative, Pushing in and encroaching and trying to redefine the people of God, okay? That's what's going on here. And he says this. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. Because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world. And the world will listen to them. This this dominant narrative. We are from God. So we are defined by God. And I know that we use this, this verse, uh, he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world, because sometimes, you know, like the jar on like a part of honey might get stuck. And so you have to have your confession. He that is in me is greater than he that is in the world. But that's not what it's about. It's about who gets, to find, who gets to define you. He that defines you, the spirit that is within you, the Christ that is manifested in you, is greater than what is trying to define you from the world. They are from the world. You are from God. Let's get this straight, children. You def- you derive your meaning and your identity from God. They derive their meaning from somewhere else. He that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. So it's this over and against. So then, how do we engage with this? How do we... Uh, how do we tap into this? How do we become defined by this Yahweh, who in the midst of exile can say to his, his people, you're not defeated. I've not been defeated. I'm still here. Who in the midst of hopelessness can say, I will revive your hope. How do we engage with this God? How do we take that on board? Well, like I said, I've been getting really into like Old Testament theology, and there's these things, and you will recognise them. There's these things, these practices that are built into Israel. And it's genius. It's built into the law, the commands, let's call it. And I'm going to go full-on preaching now. Three things beginning with the same letter. Okay? The first one is this. It's a liturgical practice for Israel, okay? The first one is remember. Throughout Deuteronomy, remember. Remember that you were once slaves in Egypt. Therefore, do this. Why should you have Sabbath? Because you were once slaves in Egypt. So remember to have Sabbath, because otherwise you'll still have the mindset of being slaves. Because in Egypt it was seven days a week making bricks. But under Yahweh, you have a day off. What do I do on that day? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. But don't I make a few bricks? No, no, no. You do nothing. You remember. And they built it in, into their calendar. Well, remember that Yahweh delivered you, so we'll have a festival. Remember that Yahweh delivered you, so we'll have another festival. How many festivals have we show? Oh, we'll have seven. Throughout the year, we'll have all these festivals. Why? Because you might forget. And when you have these festivals, say these things. Why? Because you'll forget. So do this every year. Remember. And if it's not this, this chronological remembering, it's this geographical Remembering. Well, we crossed the river. Yeah, so build a pillar there so you know that's where you crossed. Why? Because you'll forget that I stopped the water and allowed you to go through. So if it's not remembering in time by having this yearly liturgical calendar, it's these physical places. Oh yeah, that's that place where God did that thing. Why? Because we'll forget. And then we'll return to being like that and not like this. Remember. Recite. The reason why we have Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, is because they recite these things. Write them down. Tell them to your kids. Recite. So you remember, you recite these things. The whole of Psalms, pretty much, is this reciting. Praise the Lord. Why? Because he did something. Not because of some abstract notion of God's goodness. No, he actually did something. We don't just arbitrarily praise some philosophical deity. He did something. He delivered us out of Egypt. He did these things. He lifted the poor and the lowly to an exalted place. He did these things. So recite them. Be shaped by this remembering and this thanksgiving. Okay, this is where we're coming into what uh, Steve was talking about earlier. And renew these things this is where it gets a bit complicated because it's not just, I remember, God did some things back then and therefore it's praiseworthy. No, I witnessed what his character is like because he did this thing and then he did this thing and then he did this thing and then he did this thing. He, did this thing. he has shown me that he is faithful. Ergo, vis-a-vis, um, sorry, matrix joke, he's going to carry on Being faithful. So renew them. Because God delivered you then, means that God can deliver you now. So when you were in Egypt, you didn't think it was possible, but it happened. But now, while you're in Babylon, even though it looks hopeless, there is still a hope. Because your God is the God who delivers you from under the thumb of dominant leadership. Renew those things. So not only remember... Not only recite them to write them down, it's almost as if Steve read my notes this morning, isn't it? But renew them. They can become anew again. That's what the prophets did. They took Israel's liturgical past and they said, but it's the same God, capable of the same things. So we're not just worshipping something from our past. Ah, the good old days. They were never the good old days. It always has a future. For I know the plans I have for you, a plan for a hope and a future. That's in Jeremiah. So, remember, recite, and see them renewed. That's the whole practice of the Old Testament, fulfilled in Jesus. I am the God who delivers you. What does Jesus do? <coughs> delivers us. Jesus enacts. It, it, Jesus did this to fulfill what was said. So he renews it. So finally then. So how do we engage with this God? Well, we remember what he's done. We recite what he's done. That's what we do every Sunday morning when one of us straps on a guitar and we sing these songs. We're reciting those things. Whether it's our own personal stuff or stuff drawn from the history of Christianity. And we see them renewed. Which is what Steve's going with with these testimonies. And and this creates a future, and it's not just wishful thinking, as in, I wish that God would heal me. I wish that we could see breakthrough in this, because that's a bit nebulous and a bit abstract, isn't it? No, no, no. God has healed so-and-so. God has delivered so-and-so. God has created hope in this place for this person. Therefore, I can hope that that can happen again. It's a tangible, visceral, physical, real-world hope. It's not just some airy-fairy, hyper spiritualized wishful thinking. It actually is grounded and rooted in physical lives. So, Romans 12 then. All of this thing, this remembering, this reciting, this renewing, it's all about transforming the way we think. A good sermon always has to mention transformers. And Jesus. and Jesus, that's right. Um, we are transformed through the renewing of our mind. What is renewing our mind? Because the world will say, that actually, to be happy, I need a better car. Or I need a better career. Or I need an iPad. No, Pete and Steve will tell me that I need an iPad to be happy. But generally, advertising will tell me I need a car or better makeup. I always need better makeup. Um, or an A-line dress. I think that's a dress type, isn't it? Sorry, I think... My, my internet feed's probably governed <laughs> by what Nick's been viewing as well. To tell me what I need to be happy. We're transformed by renewing our mind over and against the dominant narratives. We renew our mind by immersing ourselves in the actions of a concrete God. Not literally a concrete God, as in he's made out concrete. But a God who acts concretely rather than abstractly. That word there, and I love this. <coughs> the word... Um, about immersion. So when we talk about baptism, for example, the literal word "baptismo" in the Greek is the word meaning to pickle. You know when uh, kind of we were try- uh, not we, but like modern people were trying to figure out how to translate certain words out of the Greek or the Hebrew. They they don't just they didn't automatically just know it from like modern Greek or something. They actually had to go and look at like. Oh, like really ancient stuff like so contemporary stuff around the time of the Bible and so we had this word baptismo in the New Testament and they couldn't figure out what, what, what is the context and meaning of baptismo they didn't know and then they found a woman's shopping list from like you know like 1 BC or something and it was talking about like this baptismo and they're like ah now we know what this word means and it literally was this woman wanted some pickled onions Because the funny thing about pickling is is that it's a chemical process that cannot be uh, undone. If you pickle an onion, you can never get back your original onion. And so as we immerse ourselves in God, as we remember, recite and renew what he has done, we become pickled. We become a pickled onion that cannot be reversed. Because once you know the goodness of God... Once you know that, you cannot go and unknow that. Mm. You cannot deny that God has done some goodness. Mm. Yeah. So, how do we do it? We renew ourselves by the trans- transformation of our mind. We transform ourselves by the renewing of our mind, I should say. So, then, how, how does this work out? I, I learned this uh, little um, illustration when I was in China. You see. When the circumstances, when the dominant narratives come, it's a bit like being in hot water. You know, we use that kind of idiom, don't we? So what happens when you put an egg in hot water for long enough? Hardens, right? So something that was soft and fluid with the spirit. It's got to be spiritual, right? Inside, you know, it was fluid, it was movable. It was mouldable by the Spirit of God. But sometimes when it's put in hot water, when it's immersed in circumstances that it cannot handle... It just becomes hard, hardened. This one's been boiled. And sometimes, what happens if you put vegetables in um, hot water for long enough? They become soft. So a carrot, which is pretty hard, you know, if you ever eat raw carrot, sometimes. They're hard, right? But so, so sometimes when we, we feel so strong, we're not going to be dominated by anything. But if we're immersed in hot water, we can become soft, softened and supple. And changeable to the circumstances. But what happens when you put a tea bag in hot water? Yeah, there we go. There's the chemistry list coming in. It changes the water. The circumstances change the egg. The circumstances change <laughs> the carrot. <coughs> the teabag changes the circumstances. And that's what it's like when when we take our definition from Yahweh, instead of there being no king in Israel and everybody just does whatever they want, there is a king in Israel. And he changes the circumstances. So if we are in need of deliverance, we have a God who changes that circumstance. If we are feeling hopeless, we have a God that comes in and says, there is still hope, because this is not the last word. Filled with the Spirit of God, following Yahweh, being defined by Yahweh, over and against the dominant narratives, we are enabled to change the circumstance and not be changed by the circumstance. And so, drawing upon... um, those ideas of rec- remember, recite, renew. Uh, think about your testimonies, if you've brought them, if you're comfortable with them. And what I want us to do, kind of along with what Steve was saying, that's your homework, what Steve was saying. Um. We're setting homework now. That's how it works here. Um, turn with me to Psalm 136. And and we'll finish here. I'll just, we'll just kind of tail off into a, a general ambient time of being together. Give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the God of gods for his loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the Lord of lords for his loving kindness is everlasting. To him alone who does great wonders for his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who made the heavens with skill for his loving kindness is everlasting to him who spread out the earth above the waters for his loving kindness is everlasting to him who made the great lights for his love is everlasting his loving kindness is everlasting the sun to rule by day and his for his loving kindness is everlasting the moon and stars to rule by night for his loving kindness is everlasting to him who smote the egyptians and their firstborn for his love is his loving kindness is everlasting and brought israel out from their midst for his loving kindness is everlasting with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, for his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who divided the Red Sea asunder, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And made Israel pass through the midst of it, for his loving kindness is everlasting. For he overthrew Pharaoh and his army in the Red Sea, for his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who led his people through the wilderness, for his loving kindness is everlasting. To him who smote the great kings, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And he slew mighty kings, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And Og, the king of Bashan, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And gave their land as a heritage, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Even a heritage to Israel, his servant, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Who remembered us in our lower state, for his loving kindness is everlasting. And rescued us from our adversaries. For his loving kindness is everlasting. Who should give us food? Who, should, who gives food to all flesh? For his loving kindness is everlasting. Give thanks to the God of heaven for his loving kindness is everlasting. I, I love that because it's very repetitive. Um, so, 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 what's a, a characteristic of Yahweh from that, that, that Psalm? His loving kindness is everlasting. Why do they declare that? How do they know that his loving kindness is everlasting? they've tasted and seen every single line I'm going to borrow some Walter Brueggemann now and pretend I know grammar every single line has a verb a verbal statement God did something and therefore they can proclaim a generic uh, adjectival statement is that adjectival a word? there we go that'll work for me God has done something and so they can say something about the nature of God And so for us now, with your testimonies in your mind, I want us to add some verses to Psalm 136. What has God done? What is the goodness of God that you have experienced in one line where you can say, because he delivered Sarah from fetal hydrops, for his kindness, his loving kindness is everlasting. So moving on to what Steve asked us to do I want you guys to as you're comfortable, that's a really important thing as you feel safe and comfortable talk to somebody else or many of you gang up on one person or the other way around as well one person gang up on many to share these testimonies Matt and Beth will have a child for his his loving kindness is everlasting I've stolen you on that. <laughs> 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 So please, uh, I'm going to finish in prayer and then we'll, we'll move on to that time of discussion. And just remember, as we immerse ourselves in these things, as we are defined by these things, as we learn that I am His through these things, we don't become autonomous and shaped by the prevailing narratives, but we become people full of the Spirit that change the prevailing narratives. Okay, so, Heavenly Father, thank you that you are the God who speaks a counter-narrative, that you are a God who subverts the dominant narrative, that you are a God who speaks hope to the hopeless, that you speak strength to the weary, that God, you are the one who reinvigorates us with life in the face of death, that where um, we have felt like we are failing, where, where society is gone completely awry and there is no hope that god you are the one who says there is always hope that you are the one that says to lazarus come out from the grave and take off those grave clothes because those grave clothes are not the final word they are not the final end thank you heavenly father that your loving kindness is everlasting that your love never fails that all else will pass away but your love will not your love endures father let us know that enduring love let us know um your verbal utterances in our week that we can proclaim uh, adjectively your nature, that we would be led by you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.